Chapter 5, Parts 1 to 3 of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Fifth The War in South Africa. 1. Mary and I did not meet again for five years, and for nearly all that time I remained in South Africa. I went from England a boy. I came back seasoned into manhood. They had been years of crowded experience, rapid yet complicated growth, disillusionment and thought. Responsibility had come to me. I had seen death, I had seen suffering, and held the lives of men in my hands. Of course, one does not become a soldier on active service at once for the wishing, and there was not at first that ready disposition on the part of the home military authorities which arose later to send out young enthusiasts. I could ride and shoot fairly well, and accordingly I decided to go on my own account to Durban, for it was manifest that things would begin in Natal, and there attach myself to some of the local volunteer corps that would certainly be raised. This took me out of England at once, a thing that fell in very well with my mood. I would, I was resolved, begin life afresh. I would force myself to think of nothing but the war. I would never, if I could help it, think of Mary again. The war had already begun when I reached Durban. The town was seething with the news of a great British victory at Dundee. We came into the port through rain and rough weather, and passed a big white liner, loaded up feverishly from steam-tenders, with wealthy refugees going Englandward. From two troop-ships against the wharves there was a great business of landing horses. The horses of the dragoons and hussars from India. I spent the best part of my first night in South Africa, in the streets, looking in vain for a bedroom, and was helped at last by a kindly rickshaw Zulu to a shanty where I slept upon three chairs. I remember I felt singularly unwanted. The next day I set about my volunteering. By midday I had opened communications with that extremely untried and problematical body, the Imperial Light Horse, and in three days more I was in the company of a mixed batch of men, mostly Australian volunteers, on my way to a place I had never heard of before called Ladysmith, through a country of increasing picturesqueness, and along a curious curving little line, whose down-traffic seemed always waiting in sidings, and consisted of crowded little trains full of pitiful fugitives, white, brown, and black, stifled and starving. They were all clamoring to buy food and drink, and none seemed forthcoming. We shunned once to allow a southbound train to pass, a peculiar train that sent everyone on to the line to see. Prisoners of war! There they were, real live enemies, rather glum, looking out at us with faces very like our own, but rather more unshaven. They had come from the battle of Alonslachty. 
I had never been out of England before, except for a little mountaineering in the French Alps and one walking excursion in the Black Forest, and the scenery of Lower Natal amazed me. I had expected nothing nearly so tropical, so rich and vivid. There were little Mozambique monkeys chattering in the thick-set trees beside the line, and a quantity of unfamiliar birds and gaudy flowers amidst the abundant deep greenery. There were aloe and cactus hedges, patches of unfamiliar cultivation upon the hills, bunchy, frondy growths that I learnt were bananas and plantains, and there were barbaric, insanitary-looking kaffir crawls, which I supposed had vanished before our civilization. There seemed an enormous quantity of kaffirs all along the line, and all of them, men, women, and children, were staring at the train. The scenery grew finer and bolder, and more bare and mountainous, until at last we came out into the great basin in which lay this ladysmith. It seemed a poor, unimportant, dusty little street of huts as we approached it, but the great crests beyond struck me as very beautiful in the morning light. I forgot the beauty of those hills as we drew into the station. It was the morning after the surrender of Nicholson's Neck. I had come to join an army already tremendously astonished and shattered. The sunny prospect of a triumphal procession to Praetoria, which had been still in men's minds at Durban, had vanished altogether. In rather less than a fortnight of stubborn fighting, we had displayed a strategy that was flighty rather than brilliant, and lost a whole battery of guns and nearly twelve hundred prisoners. We had had compensations. Our common soldiers were good stuff at any rate. But the fact was clear, that we were fighting an army, not only very much bigger than ours, but better equipped, with bigger guns, better information, and it seemed superior strategy. We were being shoved back into this ladysmith and encircled. This confused, disconcerted, and thoroughly bad-tempered army, whose mules and bullocks cumbered the central street of the place, was all that was left of the British Empire in Natal. Behind it was an unprotected country, and the line to Peter Meritzburg, Durban, and the sea. You cannot imagine how amazed I felt at it. I had been prepared for a sort of Kentucky quality in the enemy, illiteracy, pluck, guile, and good shooting, but to find them with more modern arms than our own, more modern methods. Weren't we there, after all, to teach them? Weren't we the twentieth, and they the eighteenth century? The town had been shelled the day before from those very hills I had admired. At any time it might be shelled again. The nose of a big gun was pointed out to me, by a blasphemous little private in the Devons. It was a tremendous, a profoundly impressive black snout. His opinions of the directing wisdom at home were unquotable. The platform was a wild confusion of women and children and colored people. There was even an invalid lady on a stretcher. 
every non-combatant who could be got out of Ladysmith was being hustled out that day. Everyone was smarting with a sense of defeat in progress. Everyone was disappointed and worried. One got short answers to one's questions. For a time I couldn't even find out where I had to go. 2. I fired my first shot at a fellow creature within four days of my arrival. We rode out down the road to the south to search some hills, and found the Boers in fair strength away to the east of us. We were dismounted, and pushed up on foot through a wood to a grassy crest. There, for the first time, I saw the enemy, little respectable-looking, unsoldier-like figures, mostly in black, dodging about upon a ridge perhaps a mile away. I took a shot at one of these figures just before it vanished into a gully. One or two bullets came overhead, and I tried to remember what I had picked up about cover. They made a sound, whiff for whiff, a kind of tearing whistle, and there was nothing but a distant crackling to give one a hint of their direction until they took effect. I remember the peculiar smell of the grass amidst which I crouched, my sudden disgust to realize I was lying, and had to lie now for an indefinite time, in the open sunlight and far from any shade, and how I wondered whether, after all, I had wanted to come to this war. We lay shooting intermittently until the afternoon. I couldn't understand why. We went forward a little, and at last retired upon Ladysmith. On the way down to the horses I came upon my first dead man. He was lying in a crumpled heap not fifty yards from where I had been shooting. There he lay, the shattered mirror of a world. One side of his skull over the ear had been knocked away by a nearly spent bullet and he was crumpled up and face upward, as though he had struggled to his feet and fallen back. He looked rather horrible, with blue eyes wide open and glassily amazed, and the black flies clustering upon his clotted wound and round his open mouth. I halted for a moment at the sight, and found the keen scrutiny of a fellow trooper upon me. No good waiting for him! I said with an affectation of indifference. But all through the night I saw him again, and marveled at the stupendous absurdity of such a death. I was a little feverish, I remember, and engaged in an interminable theological argument with myself why, when a man is dead, he should leave so queer and irrelevant a thing as a body to decay. I was already very far away from London and Burnmore Park. I doubt if I thought of Mary at all for many days. 3. It isn't my business to write here any consecutive story of my war experiences. Luck and some latent quality in my composition made me a fairly successful soldier. Among other things, I have an exceptionally good sense of direction, and that was very useful to me. And in Burnmore Park I suppose I had picked up many of the qualities of a scout. 
I did some fair outpost work during the Ladysmith siege. I could report as well as crawl and watch. And I was already a sergeant when we made a night attack, and captured and blew up Long Tom. There, after the fight, while we were covering the engineers, I got a queer steel ball about the size of a pea in my arm, a bicycle-bearing's ball it was, and had my first experience of an army surgeon's knife next day. It was much less painful than I had expected. I was also hit during the big assault on the 6th of January in the left shoulder, but so very slightly that I wasn't technically disabled. They were the only wounds I got in the war, but I went under with dysentery before the relief, and though I was by no means a bad case, I was a very yellow-faced, broken-looking convalescent, when at last the Boer hosts rolled northward again, and Buller's men came riding across the flats. I had seen some stimulating things during those four months of actual warfare. A hundred intense impressions of death, wounds, anger, patience, brutality, courage, generosity, and wasteful destruction. Above all, wasteful destruction, to correct the easy, optimistic patriotism of my university days. There is a depression in the opening stages of fever, and a feebleness in a convalescence on a starvation diet, that leads men to broad and sober views. Heavens, how I hated the horse extract, chevril we called it, that served us for beef tea. When I came down from Ladysmith to the sea to pick up my strength, I had not an illusion left about the serene, divinely appointed empire of the English. But if I had less national conceit, I had certainly more patriotic determination. That grew with every day of returning health. The reality of this war had got hold of my imagination, as indeed for a time it got hold of the English imagination altogether, and I was now almost fiercely keen to learn and do. At the first chance I returned to active service, and now I was no longer a disconsolate lover taking war for a cure, but an earnest and I think reasonably able young officer, very alert for chances. I got those chances soon enough. I rejoined our men beyond Kimberley, on the way to Mafeking. We were the extreme British left in the advance upon Praetoria, and I rode with Mahan, and was ambushed with him in a little affair beyond Cottesrand. It was a sudden, brisk encounter. We got fired into at close quarters, but we knew our work by that time and charged home and brought in a handful of prisoners to make up for the men we had lost. A few days later we came into the flattened ruins of the quaintest siege in history. Three days after we relieved Mafeking, I had the luck to catch one of Snyman's retreating guns rather easily, the only big gun that was taken at Mafeking. I came upon it unexpectedly with about twenty men, spotted a clump of brush four hundred yards ahead, galloped into it before the Boers realized the boldness of our game, shot all the draft oxen while they hesitated, and held them up until Chambers arrived on the scene. 
The incident got perhaps a disproportionate share of attention in the papers at home, because of the way in which Mafeking had been kept in focus. I was mentioned twice again in despatches before we rode across to join Roberts in Praetoria, and see what we believed to be the end of the war. We were too late to go on up to Kamadaport, and had some rather blank and troublesome work on the north side of the town. That was indeed the end of the Great War. The rest was a struggle with guerrillas. Everyone thought things were altogether over. I wrote to my father discussing the probable date of my return. But there were great chances still to come for an active young officer. The guerrilla war was to prolong the struggle yet for a whole laborious, eventful year, and I was to make the most of those later opportunities. Those years in South Africa are stuck into my mind like like those pink-colored pages about something else one finds at times in a railway indicature. Chance had put this work in my way, and started me upon it with a reputation that wasn't altogether deserved, and I found I could only live up to it and get things done well, by a fixed and extreme concentration of my attention. But the whole business was so interesting that I found it possible to make that concentration. Essentially, warfare is a game of elaborate but witty problems in precaution and anticipation, with amazing scope for invention. You so saturate your mind with the facts and possibilities of the situation that intuitions emerge. It did not do to think of anything beyond those facts and possibilities, and dodges and counter-dodges, for to do so was to let in irrelevant and distracting lights. During all that concluding year of service, I was not so much myself as a forced and artificial thing I made out of myself to meet the special needs of the time. I became a bore-outwitting animal. When I was tired of this specialized thinking, then the best relief, I found, was some quite trivial occupation playing poker, yelling in the chorus of some interminable song one of the men would sing, or coining South African limericks, or playing burlesque bourrime with Fred Maxim, who was then my second in command. Yet occasionally thought overtook me. I remember lying one night out upon a huge dark hillside in a melancholy wilderness of rock-ribbed hills, waiting for one of the flying commandos that were breaking northward from Cape Colony towards the Orange River in front of Colonel Eustace. We had been riding all day, I was taking risks in what I was doing, and there is something very cheerless in a fireless bivouac. My mind became uncontrollably active. It was a clear, still night. The young moon set early, in a glow of white that threw the jagged contours of a hill to the southeast into strange, weird prominence. The patches of moonshine evaporated from the summits of the nearer hills, and left them hard and dark. Then there was nothing but a great soft black darkness below that jagged edge, and above it the stars very large and bright. Somewhere, under that enormous serenity to the south of us, 
the hunted boars must be halting to snatch an hour or so of rest. And beyond them again extended the long, thin net of the pursuing British. It all seemed infinitely small and remote. There was no sound of it, no hint of it, no searchlight at work, no faintest streamer of smoke, nor the reflection of a solitary fire in the sky. All this business that had held my mind so long was reduced to insignificance between the blackness of the hills and the greatness of the sky. A little trouble, it seemed of no importance under the Southern Cross. And I fell wondering, as I had not wondered for long, at the forces that had brought me to this occupation, and the strangeness of this game of war, which had filled the minds and tempered the spirit of a quarter of a million of men for two hard-living years. I fell thinking of the dead. No soldier in a proper state of mind ever thinks of the dead. At times, of course, one suspects. One catches a man glancing at the pair of boots sticking out stiffly from under a blanket, but at once he speaks of other things. Nevertheless, some suppressed part of my being had been stirring up ugly and monstrous memories of distortion, disfigurement, torment, and decay, of dead men in stained and ragged clothes with their soul-worn boots drawn up under them, of the blood trail of a dying man who had crawled up to a dead comrade rather than die alone, of kafirs heaping limp, pitiful bodies together for burial, of the voices of inaccessible wounded in the rain on Wagon Hill, crying in the night, of a heap of men we found in Odonga three days dead, of the dumb agony of shell-torn horses, and the vast distressful litter and heavy brooding stench, the cans and cartridge cases and filth and bloody rags of a shelled and captured logger. I will confess I have never lost my horror of dead bodies. They are dreadful to me, dreadful. I dread their stiff attitudes, their terrible intent inattention. To this day such memories haunt me. That night they nearly overwhelmed me. I thought of the grim silence of the surgeon's tent, the miseries and disordered ravings of the fever hospital, of the midnight burial of a journalist at Ladysmith, with the distant searchlight on Bulwana flicking suddenly upon our faces and making the coffin shine silver-white. What a vast trail of destruction South Africa had become! I thought of the black, scorched stones of burnt and abandoned farms, of wretched natives we had found, shot like dogs and flung aside, rottenly amazed, decaying in infinite indignity of stories of treachery and fierce revenges sweeping along in the trail of the greater fighting. I knew too well of certain atrocities. One had to believe them incredibly stupid to escape the conviction that they were incredibly evil. For a time my mind could make no headway against its monstrous assemblage of horror. There was something in that jagged black hill against the moonshine, 
and the gigantic basin of darkness out of which it rose, that seemed to gather all these gaunt and grisly effects into one appalling heap of agonizing futility. That rock rose up and crouched, like something that broods and watches. I remember I sat up in the darkness, staring at it. I found myself murmuring, Get the proportions of things! Get the proportions of things! I had an absurd impression of a duel between myself and the cavernous antagonism of the huge black spaces below me. I argued that all this pain and waste was no more than the salvage of a proportionately limitless fabric of sane, interested, impassioned, and joyous living. These stiff, still memories seemed to refute me. But why us? they seemed to insist. In some way it's essential, this margin. I stopped at that. If all this pain, waste, violence, anguish is essential to life, why does my spirit rise against it? What is wrong with me? I got from that into a corner of self-examination. Did I respond overmuch to these painful aspects in life? When I was a boy I had never had the spirit even to kill rats. Siddons came into the meditation. Siddons, the essential Englishman, a little scornful, throwing out contemptuous phrases. Soft! Was I a soft? What was a soft? Something not rough, not hardy and bloody. I felt I had to own to the word, after years of resistance. A dreadful thing it is when a great empire has to rely upon soft soldiers. Was civilization breeding a type of human being too tender to go on living? I stuck for a time, as one does on these nocturnal occasions, at the word hypersensitive, going round it and about it. I do not know now how it was that I passed from a mood so darkened and sunless to one of exceptional exaltation, but I recall very clearly that I did. I believe that I made a crowning effort against this despair and horror that had found me out in the darkness and overcome. I cried in my heart for help, as a lost child cries to God. I seem to remember a rush of impassioned prayer, not only for myself, not chiefly for myself, but for all those smashed and soiled and spoilt and battered residues of men whose memories tormented me. I prayed to God that they had not lived in vain, that particularly those poor Kaffir scouts might not have lived in vain. They are like children, I said. It was a murder of children, by children. My horror passed insensibly. I have to feel the dreadfulness of these things, I told myself, because it is good for such a creature as I to feel them dreadful. But if one understood, it would all be simple, not dreadful at all. I clung to that and repeated it. It would all be perfectly simple. It would come out no more horrible 
than the things that used to frighten me as a child. The shadow on the stairs, the white moonrise reflected on a barked and withered tree, a peculiar dream of moving geometrical forms, an ugly illustration in the Arabian Nights. I do not know how long I wrestled with God and prayed that night, but abruptly the shadows broke, and very suddenly and swiftly my spirit seemed to flame up into space like some white beacon that is set alight. Everything became light and clear and confident. I was assured that all was well with us, with us who lived and fought, and with the dead who rotted now in fifty thousand hasty graves. For a long time it seemed I was repeating again and again with soundless lips, and finding the deepest comfort in my words. And out of our agonies comes victory, out of our agonies comes victory, have pity on us, God our Father. I think that mood passed quite insensibly from waking to a kind of clear dreaming. I have an impression that I fell asleep and was aroused by a gun. Yet I was certainly still sitting up when I heard that gun. I was astonished to find things darkly visible about me. I had not noted that the stars were growing pale until the sound of this gun very far away called my mind back to the grooves in which it was now accustomed to move. I started into absolute wakefulness. A gun? I found myself trying to see my watch. I heard a slipping and clatter of pebbles near me, and discovered Fred Maxim at my side. Look, he said, hoarse with excitement, already. He pointed to a string of dim little figures galloping helter-skelter over the neck and down the gap in the hills towards us. They came up against the pale western sky, little nodding, swaying black dots, and flashed over and were lost in the misty purple groove towards us. They must have been riding through the night, the British following. To them we were invisible. Behind us was the shining east. We were in a shadow still too dark to betray us. In a moment I was afoot and called out to the men, my philosophy, my deep questionings, all torn out of my mind, like a page of scribbled poetry plucked out of a business notebook. Cocky figures were up all about me, passing the word and hurrying to their places. All the dispositions I had made overnight came back clear and sharp into my mind. We hadn't long for preparations. It seems now there were only a few busy moments before the fighting began. It must have been much longer in reality. By that time we had seen their gun come over and a train of carts. They were blundering right into us. Every moment it was getting lighter and the moment of contact nearer. Then crack from down below among the rocks, and there was a sudden stoppage of the trail of dark shapes upon the hillside. Crack! came a shot from our extreme left. I damned the impatient men who had shot away the secret of our presence. But we had to keep them at a shooting distance. Would the Boers have the wit to charge through us before the daylight came, or should we hold them? 
I had a swift, disturbing idea. Would they try to bolt across our front to the left? Had we extended far enough across the deep valley to our left? But they'd hesitate on account of their gun. The gun couldn't go that way because of the gullies and thickets. But suppose they tried it? I hung between momentous decisions. Then, all up the dim hillside, I could make out the Boers halting and riding back. One rifle across there flashed. We held them. We had begun the fight of Peter's Neck, which ended before midday with the surrender of Simon Bota and over seven hundred men. It was the crown of all my soldiering. End of chapter 5 Parts 1 to 3